right, welcome back to another week of Rocky Mountain Surgery. This is Jason. And this is Allie. This week's episode, we're going to talk about the interview process for surgical residency. Although I will add, this episode actually will be great for anyone applying to any kind of medical residency or other subspecialty residency or really medical school in general. Most of these topics apply pretty broadly. Yeah, I would definitely agree. So let's start off our podcast again. Sorry, we forgot to do this last week, but fun things that we did in the past week. So we'll give you a summation of fun things we did in the past two weeks. So Jason and I, along with our significant others, went to New Belgium Brewery, which is in nearby Fort Collins, and went on the brewery tour there. It was such a fun experience. We saw how they brewed all of their different beers, their different fooder system, which if you are unfamiliar, is like a large wooden barrel that's traditionally used for aging wine. Well, you really paid attention in that tour. Yeah. I mean, clearly, much more than you. (laughs) And they age their sour beers in these old fooders because they have a lot of different yeasts and things like that and come out with delicious sour beers. It's in Fort Collins, which is only about an hour from Denver. So if you're in town and you have an extra day, I would highly recommend you go check it out. Super fun. Mm-hmm. And in addition to that, uh, this last weekend, girlfriend and I, we did a uh, long bike ride up by Boulder, which is a great place for bike riding. Lots of long stretches of roads with the mountains in the background. Beautiful weather this time of year. We had a great time doing that. Anything else, Ellie, that you did? I took my dog, one of them, to the dog park to celebrate his second birthday with his brother. That was pretty exciting. (laughs) So we're pretty normal people, I would say. Yeah. No, absolutely. I think a lot of people celebrate their dog's birthdays. Thanks, Jason. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So one of the people that we talked to for this week's podcast is Dr. Nicole Christian, who is one of the PGY7 chiefs here at the University of Colorado. She went to medical school here and interviewed for the medical school for medical school applicants while she was a, I think, third and fourth year student. And she just went through a huge round of interviews in the application process for Breast Surgical Oncology Fellowship. And as a chief, she'll be interviewing for our program this year. That's true, yeah. So she was a perfect person to talk to. Let's listen out. So here with us tonight, we have Nicole Christian who is one of the chief surgery residents here at the University of Colorado. Nicole also did her medical school education here at the University of Colorado. So, Nicole, will you tell us a little bit about why you went into surgery, one of the questions that we like to ask all of our people who come on our show? Absolutely. So this is a very important question for interviews as well. It's really concerning when somebody's applying to surgical residency and can't answer the question, why do you want to be a surgeon? So I want to be a surgeon because I actually planned on going into pediatric oncology. And when I signed up for my third year clerkships, I decided to do surgery first to get it out of the way and completely fell in love with surgery and the whole patient care aspect. You get to take care of really sick patients and fix them quickly in a very immediate, intimate, and personal way. And so for me, the ability to have somebody who comes in with an acute abdomen do a surgery, take out their appendix or their gallbladder or their ischemic bowel, whatever, was a really powerful and meaningful experience and really distilled all the reasons I wanted to be a doctor. Well, that's interesting. Should we also answer why we went into surgery since we put Nicole on the spot? 
Yes, Jason, why did you go into surgery? <laughs> actually, I think that's a pretty similar answer. I bet a lot of us uh, experienced in med school. I also, I actually did OB-GYN before surgery and was really enjoying it. Couldn't quite put my finger on why. And then when I did surgery, I realized that being in the operating room is where I was most interested, most challenged, and uh, where I had the most fun. So it was a pretty easy decision for me. I think the same is mostly true for me as well. When I was a first-year medical student, I thought I wanted to be a gynecologic oncologist. The reason for that is because where I went to medical school, we had these one-week rotations twice a year during your preclinical years where you're placed with a faculty in the community. And that was somewhere in North Carolina and often in a rural setting, but where I was was in the same town where I grew up. And the person who I was placed with was a OBGYN generalist in the community. And my first experiences with him were in the operating room. Like I remember being very nervous and calling him before my first rotation with him, which was, you know, two months into my first year of medical school. And I met him at the hospital. We performed several outpatient surgeries that day. And then throughout the week, I saw patients that he had operated on in his clinic, but we also did obstetrics as well, which I thought was okay, but it wasn't my favorite part of the rotation. And then through the next parts of those first two years, I spent four full weeks with him and loved every moment of that. But between my first and second year of medical school, I went on an international trip to Malawi, a country which is in sub-Saharan Africa. And I went with the Department of Surgery. My mentor there was a trauma surgeon who started a surgery residency program in Malawi, which was a very underserved area and still is, but after his efforts has become remarkably more populated by Malawian trained surgeons, which is amazing. Anyway, when we were there, we were working with a gynecologist and one of his patients developed an acute abdomen and seeing the gynecologist who this patient basically had a problem that was outside of the scope of his practice and my mentor who was the trauma surgeon immediately knew what to do and was able to take full care of this patient in a low resource setting like just seeing a doctor who knew how to fully take care of a patient and who could basically treat anything i was amazed by him he knew medical things, surgical things. He really knew how to take care of the sickest, most needy patients anywhere, including in Malawi. And so I think that that made me change my mind. I held on to the thought that I was going to be a gynecologist for at least another year. And then when I did my third year clerkship, even being in the burn ICU or doing surgical oncology, which I love and I think I want to go into, I, it just sealed the deal for me. So I made the switch. What Jason and Allie both just did are really great examples of how to answer that question. Jason's response was very clear, straightforward. I could give you points one, two, and three about why Jason is a surgeon. And I think that that's, you know, surgeons are efficient people. And hearing that efficient answer, I think, can be a very great way to answer the question. And what Allie did was a little bit more detailed, but what she did is she referenced a bunch of things in her CV and background that are very impressive, working internationally, service, a bunch of clinical experiences that were specifically meaningful. And so that really helps open the door for a lot of different things and highlights some of the things that in Allie's CV may have been really important and really what makes her a great candidate. And so 
both of those approaches, I think, are really good answers without any prompting, honestly. (laughs) Allie and Jason both gave really great responses to that question. And you should, I mean, by the time you get to your interview, I think that you should sit down with one of your mentors specifically, if there's a clerkship director or a mentor in your field, um, everybody within these departments in your academic medical centers have interviewed folks before and they know what questions they've asked and what questions are commonly asked. And whether this is surgery or medicine, whatever it is you're going into, you need to be able to answer why you want to be that type of doctor. So if you can do some of this practice beforehand while the it's you know less high stakes than it is during your actual interviews, we would recommend that. We think it's important. And on that note, and backing up a bit, one thing that really stressed me out, Nicole, going into interviewing for residency was the whole preparation aspect for it. I have no idea how to prepare for something like that. Med school interviews seem somewhat different for whatever reason. Residency interviews seem more like a job interview, whereas medical interviews, medical school interviews seem more like you were applying for the next step in your education. Having recently done a fellowship interviews, what did you do or what recommendations do you have when it comes to preparing for these type of interviews? Yeah, so... That's a really good question. I think one of the things to prepare is to think about answers to common questions that are easily predictable to be asked of you on these interviews. So things like, why did you go into surgery? Why did you pick this particular specialty you're applying for in fellowship? What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? What is a time that showed that you were able to persevere through struggle a time that you failed, a time you were successful, a, you know, specific patient story, and to be able to talk about anything on your CV, including your personal interests. So if you have a paper, a poster, you're the fifth or sixth author, you need to be able to at least speak somewhat intelligently about the topic. If you can't describe the project in very general terms, you Mm -hmm. know, does not have to be super specific, but saying this was a retrospective single institution trial. We did chart review to answer this question. And this is what we found. It does not, you don't have to quote the paper to them, but you need to be able to talk about it. And I think that's a good place to start is easily predictable questions, which if you don't have a lot of experience interviewing or you don't have mentors who are available to take you through this. You know, there's all kinds of things online for job interviews that people, that you can look at a list of the top 20 questions in job interviews. And something like that, I think, would be very, very helpful. One of the things that you just mentioned talking about, whether it be your research projects or your personal interests that I think is important, be honest. Do not conflate that you are an amazing rock climber or whatever if you haven't actually done it. Because I remember I am a very amateur artist and I talked about how I like to do that in one of my ERAS applications. Yeah, Nicole is pointing to a piece of art that I did on her wall right now. But um, (laughs) at one of my at one of my residency interviews, one of the assistant program directors asked me, about like what my specific media was and everything. And I mean, I answered it in the way that I really do make amateur art. Um, And I showed her some different things on my phone that I had taken pictures of, but basically like 
These people want to honestly know you. You need to be professional, but do not conflate things that you have done. That's a very important point, I think. And it's totally okay to say, oh, I'm very amateur at art, for Mm -hmm. example, but this is why I like doing it. This is what I get out of it. This is what I like to do with it. You know, you don't have to say, oh, well, my pieces have been featured in the local museum of modern art like that's no nobody cares about that i mean that's if you very do impressive. that's awesome that's very impressive but nobody that's not important what's important is that you can talk about your passions and who you are as an individual because we can see how many publications you have or what your step score is or whether or not you honored this class or that class and where you went to college but what we don't know is who you are as a person based off of your cv and so being able to talk in a meaningful way about your experiences is what people are really looking for. Now, Nicole, during your most recent interview cycle where you were an applicant for fellowship, were there any questions that people asked you where you were like, I'm going to steal that because when I interview people, because I think that the response that that elicited in me was something that really made this program know me or it was challenging or, you know, whatever. Yeah. So I always really liked it when people talked about my personal interests because it felt like that was something I could really get into beyond, you know, these are the number of publications I have or let me tell you about my research. But some of the processes that I really liked on fellowship interviews were a couple of institutions had themes in each room. So instead of asking, tell me about yourself in every single room, they had rooms that the theme was leadership or mentorship or research. And so you got to talk about these different aspects of who you are as a person and what your applicant, who you are as an applicant without repeating yourself too much. Because something to be prepared for is that if you go on more than a couple of interviews, you're going to be asked a lot of the same questions time and time again. And it can be tough to continue to come across as authentic instead of rehearsed. But I really, that was a nice surprise for me was hearing some of these questions. And I will probably take some of these ideas of taking a theme like leadership or mentorship or teamwork and using that to talk to the applicants I interview because that gets to a different idea of who they are as a person and who they will be as a resident than the typical questions about why did you go into surgery? What are your strengths and weaknesses? Now, after having interviewed people, I know that specifically here and at many other programs, you will have discussions with other people who interviewed those same folks and talk about them. But when it comes time for us as a program to make our rank list, how does somebody stand out in your mind uh, a month after their interview? What What have the people done who have stood out a month afterwards? That's a really great question. And, you know, my answer may change after I interview people for residency. But speaking from my experience in interviewing for medical school applications, the applicants who really stood out in my mind were ones who were able to very clearly leave me with an impression of who they are as people, that they were incredibly authentic and genuine and passionate and excited about medicine Maybe not in the same way that I was, but in a way that truly demonstrated the depth of how much they cared about this job and the depth of how much 
It was important to them to be in this career. And that's a very, in some ways, very vague. It's hard to know how you come across as authentic. But in addition to be yourself. Yeah, be I mean, yourself. this goes back to us talking about don't conflate things. Write your personal statement honestly and put things on your application that you would stand by and defend, I think. Oh, absolutely. And in addition to doing a mock interview with a mentor or a resident that you're close with, your loved ones, your significant other, your parents, your sibling, your best friend, give them a list of questions to ask you and then ask them, you know, did it sound like me? Um, On one of the interviews, I actually got the question, how would your best friend describe you? Which I think is just another way to get get to what are your strengths and weaknesses. But it really made me think, and I ended up asking my friend afterwards what I should have responded. And her answer was a little bit more sarcastic than I think mine was in the interview. But it's good to know that your friends really have your back. (laughs) Were you asked any questions throughout either applying for residency or applying for fellowship that kind of stopped you in your tracks that were tough to answer? And do you have any tips for what to do in that situation? Yeah. So I think there's kind of two categories of questions that stop you in your tracks because you don't know how to answer. There are the ones that are a question you've never even thought of before. And so the newness of it, you haven't thought about, you haven't thought about it before. So it's hard to come up with an answer on the fly. I think those can be really fun, challenging questions. I kind of like those myself as an interviewer because you see what happens when somebody isn't anticipating the normal questions. And it's not really the content that is as important as it is the ability to respond on the fly. And then there are questions that stop you in your tracks because they're potentially unprofessional or unreasonable questions to ask. And so I still remember being asked when I was applying for residency why I was not going to fail out of surgery or leave surgery because, and I said something along the lines of my knowledge going into this and my dedication and how important this was to me. And it was difficult for me to see how I would was not going into this with eyes wide open. And this interviewer's response was, well, everybody says that. How do I really know you're not going to quit? And I just didn't really know how to respond to that. And I think the important things when that happens is to answer as honestly as possible. And if the interviewer continues to press your buttons, it's okay to say, I don't really know how to answer this question better. And let them move on. And the most important thing is to not get thrown Those questions say a lot more about the interviewer than you. And so don't let that throw you off your game for all the rest of your interviews of the process. And if there are really inappropriate questions, you know, there are, then it's also okay to let somebody know, either somebody at your own institution, just to talk to them about it because it's increasingly unusual to get those really inappropriate questions, but it can still happen. And it's okay to feel uncomfortable and to want to tell somebody about it. Jason, did you get any questions during your residency interview experiences that you thought were incredibly tough? Well, actually, I want to emphasize for those listening that those are incredibly rare. That was my experience. I I think of one or two times where I was taken aback by a question. And it was, they really weren't necessarily inappropriate questions. They were, like you were saying, Nicole, just not ones I had thought about. Really, the only time that I felt kind of awkward. It was another resident interviewing, or it was a resident at that time interviewing me. 
And he simply said, why should we take you over somebody else or the person outside the door? And it was a group interview, semi-group interview situation. Which is basically another iteration of what are your strengths. Right. Mm -hmm. But these are, by and away, rare events. Most of the time, it's fairly formal and expected Formal or informal? Actually, true. Yeah, Uh, Maybe formal is not the best word. Informal. Relaxed setting. So I don't want to give people who are going into this process the wrong idea that there's going to be all these tough questions they're going to they'll be challenging in the face in the in the setting that you'll be stressed and and be thinking internally but they won't be questions like Nicole's describing those are very rare experiences yeah and that's to say you know I also want to emphasize that was one interviewer amongst the 12 residency programs I interviewed at and you usually interview with between three and six or sometimes even 10 or 12 people. And so Mm. this was one person and probably a hundred people that I interviewed with, but it's most of them are most questions and most interviews truly are fairly predictable Mm -hmm. in terms of the questions you can reasonably anticipate. And ultimately the places are just trying to get to know you. Mm -hmm. They want to know if you fit within their group. Yeah. Speaking of, so Nicole, I, Find you as someone who's pretty good at schmoozing. You can mingle pretty well. <laughs> and the pre-interview dinner is a big part of the residency application process and interview process. Do you have any tips for those who are going through this process or will be, or uh, residents will be going through the fellowship process as well? Yeah. So uh, the pre-interview dinner, I think, is a really great opportunity to get to know the program in a little bit more relaxed and casual setting. They are not mandatory or critical. And so... I also know, having just gone through this, the time expense of committing to make it to all these dinners and cost of making it to all with the flights and hotel rooms. So I want everybody to feel like it's okay to miss. But if you were able to go, and I think that it's great if you can, it's a way to get to know the program in a little bit more casual setting. And so usually it's mostly the residents or fellows from the program and the applicants. Some programs will also have attendings there. Mm-hmm. and it's a way to just have a much more casual conversation. You can ask questions. Oh, what do you think of the program? What have been the best things that you like about the program? You know, tell me what you guys do for fun. It's a little bit more of a time to ask about what your life looks like at a, as a resident in that program than during the interview, which is what your training is going to look like. And so it's ask whatever you want to ask. You know, you want to be polite, of course, and professional. You don't want to ask things that would make, you know, your grandmother uncomfortable to witness you asking those questions. But the other pitfalls are frequently there's alcohol served in these settings. So you want to make sure that you don't get intoxicated. I have honestly never seen an applicant get so intoxicated that it was obvious, but it is something that people kind of, there's rumors out there that it happens at least a couple times a year around the country. And also you know, you don't want to be too kind of aggressive about asking some of these questions like pimping the residents, you know, try to make it a little bit more organic and let them experience and let them tell you what they think of the program, because they're the ones who are going to be, I think, the best resource about what that vibe is of the program, what the life as a residence really looks like there. And it's a nice time also to watch how the residents interact with each other and watch how the residents interact with faculty if they are there because those subtle interactions can actually tell you a lot about 
what the makeup is of the program. Do people actually get along? Are your colleagues truly your colleagues inside and outside of the hospital? Yeah, when I started the process of interviewing for residencies, I thought it was going to be the first school I went to. I thought it was another chance to try and shine as an individual. And by the end of it, I realized the whole purpose of the dinner was to find out if I felt like I fit in with the group of residents that I would be working with. And you kind of get a sense by the end of that nine, you know, I think I would be able to be friends with this group of people or, you know, they're just not people I would have a lot of similarities with. So that's really the main purpose of that dinner. Yeah, it's less of a time to talk about your CV and who you are as an applicant and more of a chance for you to show them who you are as a person and get those questions about, you know, where do residents live? Do you have to own a car? How many days do you actually get to go skiing in a year if you live in Colorado? Than it is to, what Jason was saying, be a personal time to shine. It's really a chance for you to get those questions answered and see if it's a good fit. And if you want to be friends with these people and spend 80 hours a week with them for the next five to seven years. Nicole, if I had met you, I would have definitely said yes to that question. Anything else that you think we should ask you or that is on your mind when thinking about the whole interviewing process? I think that the whole interview process is very different when you're applying to residency because when you're a medical when you're applying to medical school there's so many qualified applicants that you're saying please give me a chance but when you're applying to residency and you're invited for an interview it's because they as a program have already looked at your CV and think that you are a qualified applicant and then it becomes more of them as a program selling themselves to you and you as an applicant deciding if that program is going to give you what you want out of training. And so it's not the same feeling of desperation, like you just have to give me a chance and I'll show you that I can be great. If they're interviewing you, they know that you can be great. And so it's more, do you have the same kind of personality that's going to fit the goals that this program will be able to give you, you know, if you want to be the chairman of a department someday, going to a community program may not fit with your goals. And so they may help you realize that. Or if your goal is to go back to a rural place in Michigan, then training in LA may not be able to help you achieve those goals. And those are just very broad and probably untrue examples, but that's the opportunity that you get in residency. It's not the same kind of feeling that you have to demonstrate your value. The places that are interviewing you know that you have value already, and so it should be them selling themselves to you and you deciding, is this a good fit or not? I think that's absolutely true. That was probably the one part that really surprised me as you start to go and have interviews and realize they're actually selling themselves to you to a large degree. Well, we do appreciate it, Nicole. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much for asking me to join. Thanks, Nicole. So, Jason, how did you choose where to apply to residency? So I had a general idea that I wanted to do academic. I wanted to go on an academic program uh, because I wanted to be exposed to a broad variety of specialties. And I also wanted to be exposed to research. I had somewhat of an understanding of what specialty I wanted to go into. I was thinking bariatric surgery. But wasn't completely sold on the idea. So I wanted to go to a bigger program where it had a lot of everything. Uh, but with that said, I ap- applied broadly across the country. As long as it provided that kind of breadth of experiences, I felt it would be a decent program. That's kind of how I started. But then I started narrowing it down. 
based off things uh, like reputation, obviously, size of the program, what kind of city it was in. I wanted to be in kind of that large city environment because I wanted that urban trauma experience as well and that county hospital experience. And then also what the research opportunities were at that institution. How about you? Well, I think that at the beginning of the whole process, I sat down with my mentors and asked them about programs that they recommended for me. I, too, went into it looking at mostly academic programs because for the reasons you stated that I wanted to be exposed to everything, but also because I wanted, even as a medical student, I was pretty sure that I wanted to have an academic career. I was a teacher before going to medical school, and I thought that being an academic surgeon would be something that would continue that joy of teaching for me. And I also enjoy subspecialty care. And so like I've said before, one of the things that I'm interested in is surgical oncology. I'm also interested in thoracic surgery. And I felt like going to a academic residency would prepare me better for those careers. So I was coming from the East Coast. And I would say that on the residency tour that I went on, a lot of people at least that were interviewing me, were saying, uh, why do you want to leave the East Coast? So I do think that there's a preconceived notion in people's minds that people generally stay within a certain region. I, but I applied all over the country like you did as well. Yeah. And I think that you actually have to do a little bit of convincing in some of your interviews that you do want to leave the area where you are from geographically. Well, I was I went to school at University of Oklahoma and kind of the center of the country, so I wasn't really beholden to it either the East or the West Coast. So I actually face that question a lot. And it, it's really not a difficult question to answer. If you can't really say why well, you want to interview at a program, you should think twice about uh, interviewing there. So usually I would explain what several aspects were that interest me in that specific program. And that was why I was there. And the geography of the location was kind of secondary. It was still important, but not as important as that specific program. And one of the things that you said that also resonated with me was having the county hospital experience we are not, we are special in having that, but we are not completely unique. There are great county hospital experiences at Parkland, at Grady, at Harborview, many other places throughout mm -hmm. the country as well. And I, I sought out all of those programs. Mm -hmm. And something that helped me determine where I wanted to apply is I did two away rotation sub-internships, sub-I's as we call them uh, colloquially. I did one actually here at University of Colorado, and I did one, like you said, or like you were talking about Grady Memorial, which is a large county hospital, large trauma center, which were very different experiences. And I realized I really wanted an opportunity to have both of those as part of my training because the experiences at those two different types of hospitals, uh, regardless of what city they're in, are very different and important to your training, in my opinion. Uh, so that experience certainly helped me realize that that was something I wanted to include in whatever a training program I ended up matching in. One of the other things I'll say when I was talking to people about where should I send my ERAS application, some of the folks who I found to have the best insight into how the program was currently, like a lot of your surgery mentors will know people, surgeons within the program, professors, assistant professors, program directors, etc. However, People who are surgical interns or even second years at the program where you are a medical student will have really just finished the interview season, especially 
it's the beginning of the year. They were just interviewing like six months ago. So they have a fresh imprint of what a lot of these places are like, what the faculty were like, what the residents were like. So they are great resources to you and they can tell you what they enjoyed about them and if they think that it's right for you. Ali, how much did various ranking websites play in a role in, in your decision or rank list? Did you look at those type of websites and did they uh, have an effect on how you ranked at all? I mean, maybe. I, honestly, so many of the programs I applied to were big academic programs that do well on all of the ranking lists. The, the actual number wasn't important to me. Just the fact that they were a solid academic program was most important and that they had things like we were talking about with county hospitals or other intangible things mm-hmm. that I enjoyed about them. I think that student doctor can become really toxic to mm-hmm. you around the whole residency interview thing. The one thing where I feel like it was maybe helpful was people would always post when interviews went out, like, oh, the University of Washington has just released their interview uh, letters for this year. So you knew if you were getting one or weren't, or maybe were waitlisted for one. But otherwise, I found that website to be a little bit toxic. Mm-hmm. But interviews go out in a rolling fashion. And in fact, my last interview was University of Colorado. So was mine. And that's where we are. So when you get the interview, doesn't actually at all equate to how you'll rank at that location. There are several factors that go in that are, I'm not actually privy to as to when you get an interview offer as well. Typically, though, interview offers do start coming out in October, right around this time of year. However, some programs that come out earlier, some other residencies, such as family medicine, internal medicine, actually will start going out earlier than surgery. I remember having several friends who had five or six inter- or interviews lined up. Like the first day? Yeah, before I had heard from anybody. Mine too. And I went to a medical school where I was one of like 10 people applying for general surgery mm-hmm. residency. And I was so nervous uh, at the end of September, like, oh, all of my friends who are doing Mm -hmm. family medicine have 15 interviews already, and Mm -hmm. I haven't gotten any. Now, how many programs did you apply to? It must have been, I don't remember a specific number, but it must have been in the range of around 60, honestly. And there's a couple of reasons I did that. So for one, like many surgeons, I'm very hard on myself, and I did not probably appreciate my chances of matching as high as they were. But I had looked at the the, uh, various websites that gave you an idea of what your chances were matching, and they weren't at all suggestive of there being a problem. However, I was like, this is one, the last thing I want to do is not match. So I'm going to go ahead and invest in the opportunity to apply to a lot of places. That's one strategy. It's not necessarily the best strategy. It certainly is an expensive strategy. But I applied very broadly, and that included some programs where, honestly, they wouldn't have been the highest on my list, regardless of where I had interviewed. But The one thing I always reminded myself is I would rather be a general surgeon anywhere under any circumstance than not be a general surgeon at all. So I think that's worth going through that process. Again, I don't think that's a recipe for everybody, but that's kind of how I approached it. How about you? I applied to 30 programs. I don't know if this is still true, but basically there was like a certain number of programs you could apply to for the baseline fee. And then for another certain number of dollars, you could get up to 30 and then another certain dollars more. So I applied to 30, which I felt like was actually, in retrospect, maybe it was slightly too many, but it was a reasonable number. It I gave think 30 me is a reasonable, reasonable number. number of places to choose that I got interviews for. And I think I got like 22 or so interviews, mm-hmm. and I went on 12. I think the number 
our year and you guys should check with your advisors in your academic colleges was like go on 12 and a half interviews within general surgery to have a 97 percent chance of matching or something Mm -hmm. like that do you remember that i remember reading if you did 10 you had a 90 percent chance of matching and if you have 90 percent chance of doing something more than likely it's going to end up well percent it's somewhere in there for sure when did you go on your first interview i think it was early november it was actually a little bit later than I maybe anticipated, certainly compared to some of my friends who were doing non-surgical residencies. Mm-hmm. And then you uh, interview pretty much every other week, every third week or so until January. So you're traveling a lot. Truthfully, it's a really fun time. It is uh, fun. I have never traveled anywhere near that much in my life. Traveling was something I had done across the country, but nothing like this. I mean, you're pretty much living out of a suitcase, more or less. So we had a great time doing it. And you end up seeing a lot of the same people at the interviews Going to restaurants you would never have gone up in cities you would have never visited. So I had a great time, actually. Yeah, you realize that, you know, there are definitely some metrics that group you with the same people who you interview with, whether it's your desire to pursue whatever type of surgical career or your board scores or your personalities, applications, etc. Basically, you travel around the country with a very similar pack mm-hmm. of people and you will see the same applicants at multiple interviews which actually became super fun. I mm-hmm. made plenty of friends on the interview trail. And if, let's say, you're going to two interviews within the same week or something mm-hmm. like that, and you had a day layover in an area, we would go do fun things as friends if we both had that day. Like, I remember going to some of the honky-tonks in Nashville with <laughs> a friend I had met on the interview trail. Um, and then I had another friend who I think she and I went to seven interviews together. It was wow. wild. Yeah, when I was in Chicago, I actually, one of the times I went there a day early and stayed a day extra because I had never been to Chicago before. And the second day, there was a person there who I had interviewed with a couple of times. And so we pretty much toured the city together, which I would highly recommend trying to take some time. If a city is particularly important to you, going around, taking an extra day, you're never going to have an opportunity like this. Residency will be a very busy time and traveling will become somewhat of a luxury per se. Mm -hmm. So take an opportunity to enjoy the moment for sure. Now, with all of this traveling, I would say that it is incredibly expensive. I think that I probably spent somewhere around $5,000 on interviews. Um, Do you have any specific tips or tricks into saving money throughout all of that? Mm -hmm. I know that some of my friends got Miles credit cards during this period, do you have any anything for the folks listening? So the first, I was thinking about this when we were talking about what we wanted to discuss during this interview. And I remember hearing discussions, and uh, let me caveat this by saying I am by no means a tax expert. And no one should take any tax advice from me. However, I was told multiple times, and I didn't actually do this, that a lot of this you can actually write off on your taxes. As looking for a job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and several people I know did that. Other things more commonly done, I would try and share... Ubers, taxis, things like that, uh, hitch a ride with residents, take advantage of the opportunities from programs when it comes to getting a ride, things like that. Those Uber rides add up pretty quick. Mm-hmm. I would also, so I was lucky enough to have a decent amount of miles in my family using Southwest. And so I would try and travel only on that airline. Other friends of mine actually had purchased a Southwest credit card or some other airline credit card years in advance of interviews knowing that this was part of the process and had built up miles in that in that time frame. Those people had a lot more foresight than I did. I think they had family members who were in older medicine. And, in medicine who were residents. So I didn't have that much foresight either. And then you just try and 
I also would recommend Airbnb. I know some people have probably never tried that. I can say it's actually quite nice. It's quite convenient. I did it in Rome, Italy, not during residency interviews, obviously, but it's always worked out great for me. And it is much, much cheaper in most cities than a hotel room. Yeah, I did not do Airbnb during residency interviews, but I've stayed in many Airbnbs since then. And I completely agree. Mm -hmm. The only other thing I would add is that some of the programs have special deals for hotels or things like that. Mm -hmm. And they're often significantly reduced from the baseline price. So I would always check with the program coordinator if they have any special Mm -hmm. deals. They'll usually send that information out to you in your uh, interview invitation. And then the other things are just common sense when it comes to traveling, like avoiding eating in the airports as often as possible because those are some expensive tuna sandwiches and uh, packing lights so you're not paying any kind of extra baggage fee. You want to try and avoid, because you still are on student loans, racking up a huge cost during this process. Again, at the same time, I did spend an extra day both on the beginning or before and after the interview in Chicago. So And being able, especially if you have uh, interviews that are multiple times during the week, a lot of your interviews you guys will find are on the weekend, which actually makes you prioritize which uh, programs you really want to see because some programs will have three or four interview dates and a lot of those are shared by your other favorite four programs. So you have to decide where you want to go. But if you can, if there are some programs that have beginning of week or midweek interviews, sometimes you can cram. I remember I did four interviews in a week and a half Mm-hmm. And I did that all on one trip, mm-hmm. uh, going from the East Coast to the West Coast and back. And that actually, I do think, saved me money. Mm-hmm. I did two in the same city in a single weekend, uh, which meant a lot of barbecue uh, in a single day. But it certainly saved me some money. The other thing I would say is I stayed with a lot of family cousins that I had actually never met before. They were apparently cousins. I'm still <laughs> told they're cousins. Uh, they were very welcoming. If you can do that, certainly take advantage. It saved me a buttload of money. Or friends. Or friends, absolutely. All right, well, let's talk about, speaking of, you know, saving some money and getting a free meal from the program, Mm -hmm. let's talk about the interview dinner the night Mm -hmm. before. The infamous dinner the night before. So this is, it very much varies between programs from a catered meal at a faculty's or attending's household to a very informal get-together with drinks and finger foods at a bar It was very different from each program, but at the same time, very important. I thought this was probably where I decided what, how I felt in that program. By the end of that night, I would call family, my girlfriend and say, I really think this is the place for me, or, you know, I just didn't feel like I was a great fit. Certainly there are some do's and don'ts, which I think we can talk about. What about you, Ellie? What was your general sense of those dinners? No, I agree. I think that they were a nice place. You know, some of them had faculty, And some of them didn't. Mm -hmm. I would say it was maybe a Mm 50-50 split. And perhaps you were slightly more relaxed at the dinners that did not have faculty. But then at the same point, it was like a slightly lower stakes situation of meeting the faculty. Mm -hmm. Um, Like at least more casual. I definitely don't say lower stakes in the sense of you should say things that you wouldn't say on your interviews. Because certainly it is a little bit of a Mm pre-interview if you are talking with faculty there. But I agree. I think that the night before interview is really the chance for you to talk with the residents and see how they get along and they treat each other and they treat you in a less formal setting. And that is probably its greatest value, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So 
generally speaking, how I would approach these dinners is they're kind of like when you go to your significant other's family's Thanksgiving dinner. Oh, this is such a good analogy. Mm-hmm. I like this. So you want to seem approachable and friendly and interested. At the same time, you don't want to be too friendly and maybe share your darkest, deepest secrets. You want to imbibe a little, enjoy yourselves, not too much, everything in moderation. Appreciate the fact that someone's welcoming you into their home or providing you with free meals and drinks. That was kind of how I approached it. And also you want to look nice because you want to set a good impression. Yeah. I think if you kind of keep that general picture in mind, you'll do fine at all the dinners. Early on, I was quite stressed. Like I would go around and every resident, I, I would be like, I need to have a couple questions. I need to have a couple conversational points. And then I realized third or fourth interview in that this is not nearly as formal as the actual interview day. This is more of just a chance, again, for you to meet uh, the program, members of the program, meet the residents. If there are some attendings and faculty there, meet them as well. For them to get to know you, but more importantly, for you to get to know them. And as you start to settle in and realize the pattern of these, they become honestly more enjoyable. Yeah, they're actually really fun. Mm -hmm. Once you get your nerves under control Mm -hmm. at the beginning of the season, this becomes fun. One of the things that we'll talk about with Nicole, or we have talked about with Nicole, is that these are not mandatory. And if you are unable to make one, it does not mean that you cannot match at this program. Mm -hmm. Programs understand that you are traveling, that things come up. This is not a mandatory part of the thing, but honestly for you, it is important Mm -hmm. because I do think that there's valuable information garnered from going to these dinners. Yeah, because of the nature of how the interview off schedules worked out, I was in Florida one day and caught a flight that afternoon. I was in Indianapolis the next morning, and so I obviously wasn't able to make the dinner. It didn't change much. I didn't quite get a chance to meet as many people in the program and get a feel for it, but... Other than that, I don't think it at all cost me anything. So the things that the point of the dinner being a chance to meet them, what what kind of things would you say would be good points of discussion or things you should be focusing on at these dinners, Allie? Well, I really liked having one on one conversations with the residents Mm -hmm. um, and finding out what they wanted to do with their life, what fellowships they were interested in, if they were what kind of careers they saw themselves having. And what kinds of things they did outside the hospital. What made them love their city? What made them love their program? Any of those things. And then asking them questions to see, you know, could they have a life here? Did they have a spouse? And really, could I see myself being someone at this dinner Mm -hmm. the following year? Yeah, it's even an opportunity to kind of ask about the nuts and bolts of life in that program. So like, well, where do most of the residents live around town? How do they get to work? Are most of the residents in uh, married relationships with families? Are they mostly single? Depending on what your living situation is, it's helpful to either have a mix or what program you'll fit into. So it's okay to ask those kind of questions as well. That's a great time to be asking those questions. Yeah, I agree. It was also a time where I talked about at the time my husband was a public school teacher and what the public schools were like. It's just really a time where you can have informal conversations Mm -hmm. with people. Now, going into the interview day, a lot of these start relatively early in the morning. I remember our interview starts at, what, 6 or 6.30 in the morning? And that was fairly common. Yeah. And in terms of a lot of the things that we may giggle at now, but definitely thought about before going on these interviews, did you think about what you're going to wear? Maybe you're a man and you don't care. But <laughs> I definitely thought about it. A suit and tie is an obvious answer for, for men. But what like, about the color? Was there... 
a specific color preference? So I would not say now is the time to bring out the latest design when it comes to, and believe me, I enjoy a good sport coat with some interesting designs on them. This is a time to, not to stand out when it comes to your, your, your attire. You want to stand out in other ways on paper and how you communicate, not necessarily with what you wear. You want a normal, well-fitting suit with a nice standard tie, nothing fancy. Everything should be fitting well, appropriately tailored. doesn't have to be expensive. I certainly didn't have an expensive suit, but it just needs to look appropriate. Again, this is like the analogy of you're going to your, your in-law's house for Thanksgiving. You don't need to show up wearing a Gucci suit, no. but you should show up looking appropriate for the, for the occasion. Mm-hmm. I wore either a... Actually, I wore black every single time I had mm-hmm. two black suits that I kind of exchanged. But I think black or navy yeah. would probably be my preference. If you have something else that's like a muted brown, that's probably fine also. But then something that is a not crazy pattern mm-hmm. shirt. And then as far as wearing heels, honestly, ladies, if you want to wear heels, wear heels. But the thing that I will say is that on multiple interviews that I went on, we had tours which were actually awesome. And you got mm-hmm. to see a lot of the hospital. And some of these, you walk up to the helipad. But I remember walking blocks around Birmingham, Alabama. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, my God, I wish I had flats in my bag. And I actually did bring flats several other interviews wow. later. Um, so whatever shoes you want to wear are fine. No one cares. No mm-hmm. one's going to look at your shoes as long as they're professional flats or professional heels. Um, but just something to consider that I didn't realize going into the interview mm-hmm. process that we would be walking so much. And now is not the time to take part in No Shave November. You want to be appropriately clean shaven. No one's going to care, at least in our residency program, whether you have a beard or not. But at least during the interview process, you don't want any reason for them to say, there's something going on with this guy or gal that I just don't think is quite right. I mean, I definitely shaved during yeah, interviews. I Same. same uh as far as the formats of interviews i think that most of the places you interview with at least three interviewers would be Mm -hmm. my general take on it three at a minimum and some of that would be where you interview with a chief resident at some of the places that was a pretty common Mm -hmm. thing sometimes you interview with the chair of surgery like every resident every applicant interviews with the chair of surgery that was true at some of the places some of them had Almost like a a group interview. Yeah, I had a couple of those. At some of the places. We could talk about that in yeah, a second, too, because that's an should. interesting dynamic. And most of the time you interview with a couple of faculty. Well, our program does group interviews, or at least we used to. We did, yeah. They were group interviews in the sense that there were probably five applicants, four or five applicants, and our chair of surgery, mm-hmm. our program director... And one other person, that other person for me was the chair of surgery at Denver Health, Dr. Moore, mm-hmm. at the time. I think there were three when I was in there, three other applicants. Mm-hmm. But yeah, when it comes to, so the first thing is you're either going to get separated into a group that's going to tour first or that's going to interview first. At least that was a large majority. Yes, that was very common. Then, of course, you're going to have an interview either with the chair or the program director or both. You're probably going to have an interview with a chief of a chief resident in that program. And then it's a smattering of individuals. The questions you can expect to be asked, why do you feel like this is a good fit for you, the program? And why are you interested in doing a surgical residency or ex-residency, whatever residency you're going into, whether it's medicine, psychiatry, etc. What other thoughts do you have on the, the actual day of the interview, Allie? 
I agree. I think that there's usually a tour. You get split. You have between three and five interviews. There's a lunch where faculty and residents are often present. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there will be, sometimes you'll be invited to grand rounds Mm -hmm. at the different institutions. I thought that was kind of nice Mm -hmm. um, where you actually get to see how people interact within the hospital. Mm -hmm. And then other times there were like, presentations Mm -hmm. on resident life or things that residents had done. I always Mm -hmm. thought that was nice. Actually, there was one program I interviewed at where the senior residents gave kind of speeches during the interview day. And I thought that that was lovely because it it showed how invested this particular residency program was within their residents to me. Um, But there are so many different variations on it, but basically the same theme that you interview with three to five people, you tour the place, and you hang out with some residents in the interim. You want to hear my embarrassing question that someone else got asked, but it's even still to this day, I'm mm-hmm. not really... I understand what the question is asking, but I'm not really sure how to answer it sure. that well. please share. Jason. This is this is us doing this interview okay. right now. All right. <clears throat> Jason, can you tell me about someone who greatly dislikes you and why? Ooh. Where do I start? <laughs> Uh, how personal should I get with this answer? I don't know. I think that the the rationale behind the question is to talk about your weaknesses, or mm-hmm. maybe you can talk about one of your weaknesses as a strength, yeah. like, oh, this person is upset with me because I was working so hard on X, Y, or Z. But I think that this is such a tough question. I actually have a question or an answer for this question, but since our relationship with our listeners is still fairly new, I'll save that. Maybe it'll come up again organically later during our uh, podcasting experience. Well, guys, if you want to hear the answer to Jason's question, just remember a couple weeks from now, (laughs) send me an email at rmspodcast at outlook.com. I'll I'll remember this forever. We'll we'll share it on a person-by-person basis, I guess. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we've covered a lot of aspects of the interview experience Eventually, we all get done with this process and we get down to the... Oh, sorry, let me back up. So after the interview, there's the... Is it an expectation? You want to correspond with, with the... Out of professionalism and a politeness, you want to correspond with the program. So there's the... I would say it's an expectation to send some kind of either email or handwritten note to the program, thanking them for, A, giving you the opportunity to interview there, because that obviously gives you an opportunity to rank them and them to rank you. Also for them to provide you with, typically there's food involved, and just their time. I personally always send an email, probably because my handwriting is not great, probably because I think in the modern era, it's probably just easier for people. But I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are, Allie, when it comes to the correspondence. I always wrote handwritten letters uh, every single time. And then I actually had like a personalized wax stamp that I would stamp it with. But you guys... This is very Etsy of you. Yes. And if you met me, you would understand that that's something that I would do. Mm -hmm. I could see that. But I think that writing an email is totally appropriate. I think that you're actually more likely to get a response Mm -hmm. back to an email than to a handwritten letter. I'm 100% certain of that. No one wrote you a handwritten note and then stamped it I've never got any like wax stamped notes back. It's so weird. The return address was on there too. I know. I think that either are an appropriate vehicle for communication. The way that I structured my letters that I wrote were dear so-and-so. I would write one to everyone who interviewed me. Same. Uh, the pro- and generally the program director and or the chair or both. Because keep in mind, these are 
faculty or residents who have incredibly busy schedules, which I appreciate much more now than I did as a medical student, yeah, definitely. who are taking the time out of their day to, to meet with you and have input on who comes to their program. So it would be like, dear Dr. Samuels, I greatly enjoyed meeting you at the University of Colorado. The things I liked about the University of Colorado were these things. I think that this would be a good fit for me because of whatever reason. And you also could say things like, I really enjoyed our conversation about your time doing global surgery and, you know, starting this residency program or whatever it was like just something Mm -hmm. where I felt like we had made a connection in our conversation that I could try and remind them of me Mm -hmm. in the note and then thank you. And then me very similar. I tried very hard to remember some personal aspect of that particular interview. Now we should back up that we had brought up group interviews. I do think they introduce a different uh, dynamic a dynamic great i had a couple group interviews like i said including our program first one i had the other two people simply had much more interesting stories in their lives than i had (laughs) one he stated he had worked for the cia at some point as some kind of computer software i don't remember the specifics of it this is a true story then the next person said she did research with with chimpanzees in africa for a year or so in between college and medical school, I think. And I I simply had nothing to compete with either of those stories. I, I mean, I feel fairly accomplished. I've certainly worked hard and, and tried to build a solid resume and had lots of interest. But I've never worked for the CIA or done research of any kind in Africa. The point I'm making is you can't let that rattle you. It's okay to laugh that kind of thing off. And I think I, that's exactly what I did, as I said <laughs> I clearly have not had the kind of life experiences these two have had. And then I wanted to talk about some personal aspect of myself. That's totally okay. What that can demonstrate is the fact that you're not easily rattled. You appreciate your strengths and weaknesses and that you're okay in a group setting when there's very different opinions being shared. What are your thoughts? I think that what is important about the group interview is that you treat all of your fellow applicants Mm. with respect because it's almost like a test of, you're all vying for a position at this one place and there's a competitive nature to it that I think you just have to like push through and say, these are my colleagues in this now. And it is not about making, it is about making yourself look good, but it is not to be at the expense of the other Mm -hmm. applicants. I think that that is the line that you walk during Mm -hmm. those. You want to present yourself in a positive way you want to demonstrate all of the great things that you have done but you shouldn't be like i'm so great jason sitting next to me is not as great Mm -hmm. as me that's not what it's about and that actually i think reflects poorly on you absolutely and like we've already discussed in prior episodes surgery is a team effort whether it's your co-residents whether it's your attendings whether it's the multidisciplinary teams you work with in the icus and so you need to show in these group interviews that you're a team player and by trying to put someone else down to make yourself look good, that's not going to send that message by any means. Totally agree. All right, Jason. So since we are getting close to the end of our interview, (laughs) what questions do you have for me? Oh man, this was the hardest part I think of any interview, mainly because there were so many opportunities to ask questions. And certainly in the first few interviews, the dinner before the tour, you've been doing nothing but trying to take as much information about this place to see if you're a good fit. And so by the fourth, fifth interview, you're starting to 
maybe run out of ideas or losing your authenticity with your questions. What I would try and do is if someone was of a particular subspecialty, I would ask about the experience in that subspecialty. So if I met with a HPV surgeon, I would say, what is the HPV surgical experience like at this hospital? Because a lot of times that's not going to be the kind of detail you're going to see on a website or mm -hmm. discuss in the residency dinner. And usually people are more than happy to discuss that kind of experience. What about you, Ali? What kind of things did you ask? You know, one of the, I think, best questions that I ended up asking, but I was given this question by a resident who was at one of the mm. night before dinners that we were talking about this, like, you know, there's so much onus on you to ask these great questions mm -hmm. at the end of the interview. And you do want to know about the program, but it's like very hard to get, I don't know, the intangible qualities of what makes something good by asking a 10 word question at the end of an interview. And what she said to me was, one of the things that I really liked asking and actually gave me some good information is who is the resident who is going to be incredibly successful in this program and who is going to struggle here? Mm -hmm. And what about this program is going to make one person successful and one person struggle? For example, our program has 10 categorical spots every year. If you need a ton of personalized attention or if you're not able to like speak up or find your own way, I think that a large program would be more difficult for you. Mm -hmm. But I do think that that's a good question and a way to get more information about this. I mean, obviously, somebody who's hardworking is going to be successful anywhere. But really, within this program specifically, who is going to succeed and who is not? So, Ali, ultimately, you're going to have a handful of programs that you've interviewed at. A lot of times you have an idea of where programs rank, but you do ultimately have to put them numerically on a list somewhere. What are your thoughts towards the rank list process, ranking these programs? You know, honestly, I think there are so many great general surgery residencies within this country that it becomes really different at the end um, of your season, or really difficult really at is. the end of your season because your six could be your two, and then the next day maybe it could be your one or your three, and I certainly went through a few iterations of my rank list. For me personally, it was important for me to go to a place that I felt like could bring me to my ultimate goal of being an academic surgeon, either a surgical oncologist or a thoracic surgeon. Places that had global surgery experience were also big things for me because that's something that I want to do in my career. And then my husband and I made this decision together. And so he was working as a public school teacher at the time. We wanted to find a place that had a decent public school system and also a place that he could enjoy while I would be in the hospital a lot. So we ended up making the decision collaboratively. And I think that that's important if you have a partner in medicine, whether you're a couples matching or whether you have a partner who's not in medicine. Uh, everybody needs to feel like they're involved in the decision if you are moving across the country somewhere together. And so we sat down and I kind of had my list of all of the programs that had the qualities that I liked. And he said, these are the one, he wanted me to go to somewhere that I wanted to train to. So that was important for him. But he wanted to go somewhere that he would enjoy living. And so, you know, we made a list uh, together. It's a very personal experience when it comes to making your rank list. This should be something about where you're going to fit in well, where you're going to feel happy, 
where you're going to get a great training. And like you said, you're going to get a great training at 99% of programs in the country. For me personally, I didn't have the, the personal connections to that weighed in on where I needed to go. So it was a very individual decision. I had an idea of what kind of surgery I wanted to do, but I was also open-minded. So I wanted to go to a large program where I would get a large breadth of experiences to help me make that decision. And that whichever path I ended up going down, I would be well prepared for, whether that if it involved a fellowship training or not. Uh, Did you make like a spreadsheet and give places points based on things? I heard a lot of that. I didn't personally do that, but did you? Uh, I actually did. And then I think I just completely ignored it and just went with my gut in the end. <laughs> I also, whether there was family nearby or in the city that the program I was ranking in played a role, although I feel like I'm fairly individual, life things happen. And it's always great to have that support system nearby uh, in the off chance that you need someone to rely on. And so that had, you know, those were some of the other things that I considered. And certainly my lifestyle, I enjoy living in more of an urban environment, but I also like to do outdoor things. So those kind of things can play an important role as well. And then ultimately you kind of, over time, shuffle things around, you get to a point, you look at it and you say, yeah, this is about right for me. And you submit. So one other thing we thought about doing, and this is really sticking our nose out there, is discussing our personal statements, because it is a big part of the process. Maybe this is going to be more of a bit of a story time type podcast for the next 15, 20 minutes. The personal statement before I start reading, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, this was the hardest part about I thought it was really difficult. You know, there are so many opinions about what you should write. I received advice like make it make yours good, but don't make it too exciting. Um, because honestly, some of them are just weird and you don't want to be remembered for something like that. I think just make it true is my best advice to people having mm -hmm. uh, been an interviewer for a medical school and now being a part of a residency. I think that making it true is fine. Making it a story about something that you've experienced is also fine. But the end goal is communicating that you want to do this job as a surgeon or whatever you're choosing to go into and why. Yeah, I think that's kind of what I shot for in my personal statement. Looking back, I probably could have maybe gone a little easy on the verbiage and try to be a little less grandiose. But it is important to sound professional. It is important to try and tell a story. And that's what I try to do ultimately is pick something that I felt encapsulated why, A, I wanted to go into surgery and B, why I would potentially make a good surgeon. I don't know if there's a great way to, to write a personal statement personally. I don't claim to be an expert on this. And I think my personal statement will make that very clear. But I'm just, just so excited. Should I just dive in? It. Did you not look at it beforehand? No, I haven't looked at it yet. Oh, my goodness. All righty. Here it goes. Plano, Texas may never have hosted the Winter Olympics, but to a teenage boy with ice-covered fantasies, it might as well have been Lake Placid. Shortly after my eighth birthday, I began playing ice hockey, a relatively new sport to North Texas. Within a few years, I was selected to my first travel team and began attending tournaments in frigid parts of the northern United States and Canada. Ever since, hockey's been an important part of my life, and surprisingly, the winter sport became a springboard for the development of character and the honing of skills that may prove useful to an aspiring general surgeon. During the steamy Texas summers of my youth, my neighbors often witnessed a bizarre sight, a makeshift shooting range consisting of a sanded wooded board, a bucket of black pucks, and a boy wearing a hockey sweater in 90 degree heat, shooting at an imaginary goalie 30 feet away. I spent many afternoons between studying and practice fine-tuning my wrist shot. Other days, I developed my stick handling skills by navigating an obstacle course of old tennis shoes and orange pylons. Ice hockey relies heavily on eye-hand coordination and muscle memory. 
allowing a person to focus on the rapid pace of a game while handling a small puck a few feet away. As a beginner, I lacked these requisite skills to play at an advanced level, and only with hours of persistent practice did I begin to develop and succeed as a player. Malcolm Gladwell discussed this phenomenon in Outliers, stating that to truly master such mechanics, 10,000 hours of practice is required. Becoming a surgeon, however, requires a level of devotion far exceeding that of a proficient athlete, and such skills can only develop with dedicated practice within the operating room. Nonetheless, the commitment and daily focus required of a striving young hockey player establishes a foundational work ethic, which I believe will serve me well as a surgeon. An important part of competitive hockey, commonly called the game before the game, is the mental preparation for each match. The first time I put on a surgical mask, sterile gown, and 7-5 and 7 gloves, I experienced the excitement that once came from taping up my sticks, lacing up my skates, and strapping on my helmet. During those pregame moments, my teammates and I quietly sat and mentally prepared for the task at hand while clearing our minds of worldly concerns. Likewise, before each surgical case, I find myself acting just as I had before a championship game, mentally picturing how I would perform in the OR and erasing from my mind the daily stressors of medical school. Surgery requires extraordinary focus, and I believe my experiences playing hockey will again assist me in residency and beyond. Most importantly, an ethic that embraces hard work is common to both hockey and surgery. I learned as I progressed in youth hockey that my greatest talent was not speed, accuracy, or strength, but diligence and passion for the game. My coach rarely tossed me the game puck after a hard-fought win. I never received the MVP trophy at the end of a tournament, and I often played on the third or fourth line, the so-called checking line, as we were not expected to score. (laughs) Still, I embraced my assigned role and came to respect it, where my teammates respected me and appreciated my desire to contribute. Similarly, general surgery requires an ethos of dedication and team-mindedness. Some students dread the daily scud of patient care, but on my rotations, I came to appreciate these tasks as they were essential to the success of the surgical team. These tasks lack the excitement of closing a surgical incision or assisting in a code during trauma call, but they are important contributions to the proper care of patients, our ultimate goal. I intend to maintain my hockey, hockey ethic throughout residency and beyond. I realize that the mental and physical demands of a surgery residency greatly exceed those of youth hockey and that the stakes in surgery are exceptionally high. Still, the seeds of hard work, dedication, and team spiritedness have been sown, and I look forward to them to their bearing fruit in the years ahead. I love it! It's so good! That's not goofy at all! No, I actually think that that is an excellent personal statement. You've you really use the metaphor throughout the yeah. entire thing, yeah. but it worked. It totally worked. I think that talking about basically this story is I'm a hard worker. This is what hockey has taught me. And this is why it translates into being a general surgeon. And I actually think it's beautifully written. <laughs> well, thank you. So I think that something like this is in more of the, I don't know. I guess this, I I really do honestly think that there are two categories of personal Mm -hmm. statement. One is more similar to this and one of them is more, I'm good and this is why. And this is very nice. I think that if I was reading an entire stack of residency applicants pages from ERAS, this would stand out to me. I mean, it it is a long hockey metaphor, but (laughs) I think it's really good. I honestly do. So I think what I was aiming for with this personal statement now that I'm remembering it fully is that even though your life may not seem, you know, again, I wasn't the one who worked for the CIA 
uh, after college for several years before. You guys are all special. Right. But honestly, you are still molded by your experiences. Yeah, you are. Uh, and so that's what I was trying to, to get at. And certainly your actions speak louder than words and your experiences speak louder than words. And so that's what I attempted to do. All right, Allie. Oh, mine is really, I don't think mine's as good as this one, but mine Ooh. is more uh. of the, this is what I have done and this is why I would be a good surgeon, but less metaphoric language. Still important though. Yes. Agreed. All right. My love for surgery started in my first year of medical school. All UNC first-year medical students are assigned to work with a community physician for two weeks throughout the year, and I was assigned to an OBGYN. After emailing to discuss details of where to meet for the first time, he informed me that the first day of my rotation, I was to meet him by the main OR board in the community hospital that he worked in, and that I would be first assisting on his case. I had completed three months of medical school at this time, and our first case was to be a hysterectomy for a woman with carcinoma in situ of her cervix. I was amazed by the beauty of surgery, finally understanding and visualizing the gravity of the knowledge learned in my anatomy course, and experiencing the satisfaction of completing something that would greatly impact this woman's life for the better. The feeling I left, or excuse me, the feeling I felt leaving the OR that day was something that I sought out throughout the rest of medical school. I applied to and was selected for an international fellowship with the Department of Surgery the following summer at a tertiary care hospital in Lalongwe, Malawi. While there, I was mentored by many excellent surgeons who guided me through trauma, burns, repairs of pediatric congenital anomalies, surgeries that cured cancer, and orthopedic surgeries that would help a young man walk again. Each time, I was in awe of the transformational power of surgery. I was thrilled by the fact that I could directly and physically contribute to the health of a patient. Again and again, I felt that feeling that I had the first time I participated in a surgery. This continued into my third year of medical school, where I participated in high-acuity trauma, burn surgery, urologic surgery, and surgical oncology. Throughout each section of my surgery clerkship, I was intrigued by both the breadth of practice of surgeons, but also the similarity in the decision-making. By the end of the clerkship, my decision was made. I was going to become a surgeon. I possess the qualities needed to become a surgeon. I respect and value that a surgeon is not only required to have a vast medical knowledge, but also must possess precise clinical decision-making skills in acute situations and actual physical skills that can alter a person's life. I enjoy the visual and physical aspect of surgery, something that is not surprising given my lifelong passion for art and creating things. I enjoy and succeed in leadership roles and am able to lead while wholeheartedly believing that teamwork and interpersonal skills are integral to providing excellent patient care. I am able to think clearly and make decisions in high-stress situations. I am able to compassionately have difficult conversations with patients and their families. I set high standards for myself and am most critical of my own work. I find challenging situations to often be the most rewarding. Throughout my surgical training, I want to continue to develop my ability to take care of critically ill patients, to continue to learn from experiences, and to improve my procedural skills. Ten years from now, I envision myself working as an academic surgeon specializing in surgical oncology. Surgical oncology will allow me to take care of a population that has always been very special to me, patients and families affected by cancer. 
I love that this field incorporates the firm clinical decision-making of surgery, but is also always evolving and changing as more is learned about cancer biology and clinical care through research. Additionally, being an academic surgeon will allow me to continue teaching, a passion I gained as a Teach for America teacher after college. I'm enthusiastic that my path in medicine has led me to become a surgeon. Surgery is a field that I love, respect, and believe will continue to challenge and fulfill me throughout my life. So mine is like the opposite of yours. No, I think that's still absolutely great. It's a perfect opportunity. The personal statement is a perfect opportunity to expound on your resume. And that's exactly what you did. And you did so very eloquently. You did so uh, in a way that was still to the point. But again, what you're trying to do in the personal statement is through experiences, explain why A, you were interested in surgery, and B, why you would be a good fit for a program. And that's exactly what you did. That's really the purpose of the personal statement. I don't know. I thought it was perfect. Oh, that was so nice. <laughs> we should all do this as people interviewing together. This is like a good, uh, this is like a trust fall. <laughs> exactly. We just did verbal trust falls, you guys. <laughs> all right, so round out this episode. So the match day, the match uh experience i guess if you will is a little bit different every place what was it like at uh where you went to high school oh it's fun at unc um mm-hmm. we get called up to a podium in a random order and if you are not the last person you bring a dollar down and put it in the bedpan at the front of this giant auditorium huh. um the thought being that the person who gets their letter last gets the bedpan full of money Usually it gets donated to a bar tab for the graduating class. But huh. um, I got called. Be a lot of money. It, yeah, I graduated with like 186 people. Um, so you get called down in this random order. We do not do the thing where everyone comes up to the mic and opens the letter in front of everyone mm-hmm. and says where they're going. Ours is less formal than that. So you run down in whatever random order you get selected and go get your letter. And then you can open your letter with family that is there in the audience, friends. um, And it's a huge, big party. It's very exciting. I was probably like right in the first third or the first half of people to get their letter I was sitting next to one of our residency classmates, Bobby, and I got my letter before Bobby, and he also wanted to come here. And so... So what was Bobby's reaction? I'm sure Bobby's going to listen to this. Yeah, he was very nervous after I figured out that I was matching here. And then, you know, my mom is crying because Denver is very far away from uh, North Carolina, where my parents live. And then once Bobby got his letter and found out he was also coming to Colorado... His mom and my mom were crying together because Denver is also very far away from the suburbs of Pittsburgh, where Bobby is from. Um, so it is just a very high energy, high excitement day. My program does it a little bit differently. They try and have a there's a theme every year. They ran out some big ballroom the year I matched there. It was like a derby theme. So I'd gotten a nice bow tie. I tried to look as derby as possible. Uh, lots of big hats, that kind of thing. And then every year they do some grand reveal where everyone uh, finds out at the same time, but they try and do it in some kitschy way. So our year, everyone had a champagne bottle. The label was where you match and the label was covered. And so at some given time, it was like 11 a.m., we all unpeeled our our bottle and then that was where we matched. That's really nice. 
once everybody gets the letter at UNC, they go through a slideshow. So everyone submits a slide and it generally has like a quote mm. or a thank you and pictures all around the outside. And in the middle of it, it says your name. So mine was like Allison Halpern, mm -hmm. General Surgery, University of Colorado. Mm. And then around it, I had my mentors, my family, my dogs, my husband. Um, and that was a really nice part because the whole slideshow runs once everyone gets their letter. And you also see where all of your classmates mm -hmm. are going to. Yep. And then we had a we have a party that night uh, with all your classmates. And it was a fun day. It's probably very similar to a wedding for those who've either been in one or been a part of one or uh, gone to their friends' weddings. It goes by very quickly and it's a very... Uh, transitional moment in your life yeah all right well i think that wraps it up for this week of rocky mountain pod or rocky mountain surgery podcast again if you want to reach out to us uh, the easiest way to do so is by emailing us at rmspodcast at outlook.com so you, you may also reach us via the department of surgery uh, twitter account which is c-u-d-e-p-t-s-u-r-g so c-u depart of surge or depart surge just search it. You guys will find it. Uh -huh. You're smart. Okay. Thanks, you guys. We appreciate you listening. Remember, send us any of your questions. Bye.